0: HOW TO CREATE A GLITCH, THE FOUR PRINCIPLES This is how to create a glitch in the matrix, the four principles. In this podcast, I will be amalgamating material on polarity, substitution and displacement, union and conservation. This is the second episode of season two of the podcast, How to Create a Glitch in the Matrix monologues. In this episode, I'll be talking about conservation, Which is one of the core principles I outlined in the last season in reference to how individuals socially fit together on a microcosmic scale. So, to begin this discussion, we're going to have to reiterate essentially the four principles that I outlined last season. They are substitution and displacement, union conservation, and polarity. Now, these four principles imply some things which are very important to understand about how the system manifests and how it functions, and specifically conservation which is the idea that identity is never created or destroyed. It simply moves around from one person to another. There's an implication of this idea, which is the reality that every thought, ultimately, happens in one form or another, and it happens because even if it's not acted upon by the actor who conceives of it in the moment, it happens and it happens because there must be some reality where that thought was acted upon. So the question becomes if it's not acted upon by the actors. So if the actor rejects the impulse or the thought and chooses not to act on it, then who acts on it? Well, as described in last one of the last season's podcast, we live in a nested reality and in this nested reality. There are distinct levels and each of these distinct levels is nested in the one above it and corresponding to each of these levels, there is a physical representation of us. So, there in effect are nine versions of us overlapping in their space, but not necessarily in time or acting upon the same thought processes and so to speak. So, there's an opportunity for divergence between these nine selves. But it's fair to say that they are each nested in the one above, and all of them are nested in the very top, which is the esoteric plate. So, from this idea, we can draw some conclusions if we suggest that every thought ultimately is acted upon in some reality. Whether it's reacted upon by the individual actor in the reality we inhabit or whether or not it's acted upon by another version of us in a lower nested reality really makes no difference because the reality is that every thought ultimately comes to fruition. And at this point, it's necessary to reintroduce the subject matter of the first of the four principles that is substitution and displacement. And essentially, the way this fits in is we can say that if an individual doesn't act on an impulse or a thought, Then they are displaced. That thought is displaced, and in the place of the original actor, an actor in one of the lower nested realities will act upon the impulse or thought. Which is to say that we go throughout our day and we have impulses here and there, we have thoughts here and there, many of them we do not act upon. But from this, we can conclude that even though we do not act upon all of our impulses in some reality and some nested reality, we do and in this nested reality, we live with the consequences of that choice for so long as they remain permanent. So the other angle I'd like to take this discussion is with respect to polarity. Now, just as conservation implies that individuals' thoughts and impulses are always acted upon by some agent of our being, whether it is the one that we remember or not, but in the case of polarity, polarity implies that for every thought, there is an antithesis for every archetype, an altar of opposing orientation, for every symbol an antithetical ideal. There is an opposing-oriented symbol. It also implies that thoughts essentially pair, which means that whenever an individual conceives a thought, there is a corresponding pair conceived of by some other member of a social system. From the understanding that presents itself to us through the concept of pairing, we can draw certain conclusions, which is that there's a certain amount of entropy associated with each thought, namely the entropy created by what I would call a dialectical case and the dialectical case is essentially the idea that some entropy is preserved by two thoughts of opposing orientation being conceived of by two distinct members of the system. Now, taking that into account, we can say that that entropy would ultimately have to degenerate so long as there is a social dialogue from the standpoint of the existence of postural releases, etc. Because antithetical thoughts are not conducive to the formation of mirroring and the formation of a gateway, and therefore they create social tension that has to be eliminated somehow before it produces a glitch. So the matter, of course, by which this is eliminated is through mirroring, which is union. So to individuals with contrary impulses or contrary thoughts, ultimately within the system have to form themselves into a relationship of dialogue, which ultimately allows them to dissolve the social tension created by the pairing of thoughts. The time it takes for this entropy to dissolve within the system is once again called the substitution time. It represents the transition of an individual with a discordant posture and posing to a mirroring posture and posing with regards to the individual of opposing orientation. So, in other words, we can say that the entropy of the system is created by the existence of the fourth principle namely, that thoughts form antithetical pairs within the system. And again, thoughts are conserved, which is to say that individuals who conceive of thoughts, regardless of whether or not they act upon them, Ultimately, the thoughts happen in some nested reality, even if they are not acted upon by us in this reality, to the extent that we are able to observe them now. The fact that all thoughts or impulses ultimately occur in some nested reality tells us that we can find clues of the existence of these nested realities because I do not have any reason to believe that they are occurring in a totally distinct and separate universe or reality, but rather they occur within a nested reality within the confines of this reality. Which means that the only factor of significance which could undermine our observation of those actions is the time it would take to do so. Essentially, what I'm saying is if let's say you're standing in a street or standing on a sidewalk and you have the impulse to jump in front of a car, in some reality you do jump in front of the car. So, what happens while you're injured? You go to the hospital and you're treated and then you hopefully recover. Now, in order for you to return to the same moment where that impulse was rejected, The only variable that changes is time. Of course, your location changes, but it's a reversible change. The only true change in a variable is the change in the variable of time. So if you imagine that these nested realities take place within folds in time in such a manner that time itself can ultimately be reversed back to the moment of a separation between those two paths, then it's possible to conceive of a reality where these thoughts or impulses ultimately occur and yet there's only minor records or signifying clues within one's environment. So essentially, what I'm saying is the reality is that there are clues to these surgeons, to these divergent paths that you can find within the confines of your life. So whenever you resist an impulse to do something, It's prudent to subsequently examine your environment and be mindful because you may very well find the consequences of that impulse as if it was acted upon within your environment or leaving clues or evidence within the confines of your life and your mind. In this episode we'll be elaborating on the manner by which direct and indirect ground manifest in the system. The path that we choose with others is determined by our projected ground. If we project indirect ground, that is, If we act on a perception of the other, if we build on an objective rather than a subjective, on reactive thoughts and feelings, then our experience of reality will be dialectical antithetical, competitive and zero-sum. If we act on a subjective, project based upon a suppositional thought or feeling, an internal state, then our reality will be moulded by our subjectivity, by our projected supposition with reciprocation. In the one, We exist in a discordance in a consensual reality. In the second, our consciousness is mere contradiction in the face of the consensual reality. In this way, we determine the direction of causation and whether our experience will be defined by an anthropic subjectivity or whether it will maintain an outward inward direction of causality. So, what is the shape of dialectical reasoning created by indirect ground? It is reactive, contextual, negating. It undermines our reason, negates our feelings. More importantly, it is zero-sum, competitive, created by a contradiction between two archetypes and the arising of a symbolic, polar characteristic to the narrative. The archetypal transforms into the symbolic as anthropic subjectivity transforms into an outward-inward direction to causality. Unity transforms into substitution and displacement. Ultimately, Indirect ground leads to substitution and displacement whereas direct ground permits reciprocation based upon a false perception of the consensual reality. How do you escape a reality which is zero-sum? The answer lies in the recognition that indirect ground is the pathway of attachment. It is the pathway of reflexive definition, of contrast and self-definition. The path of affirmation permits the filtering out of attachment through the broadening of consensual experience. Such is the path which escapes the zero-sum nature of indirect ground. Now, these two concepts, direct and indirect ground, the contingency and the supposition, presuppose a kind of dialectical process. The supposition produces the ground, then the contingency relies upon it the contingency produces the antithesis and the antithesis a synthesis and so on and so forth. Thus, the dialectical chain represented by this process is degenerative from the ground, which is represented by an if-statement. Now, since individuals maintain a species of thought underlying their action, this chain of reasoning pervades the very space their thought encompasses, such that the dialectical chain flows down a gradient toward some end state of maximum contingency, returning in the cycle to the supposition and recapitulating itself. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it please like, comment and subscribe. In this episode, I'll be discussing some basic principles involved in social interactions while incorporating concepts such as direct ground, indirect ground, open and closed thoughts. The purpose of this, which is made difficult by the medium, is to develop a systemization which might produce a notation tracking said interactions. First of all, any social interaction, in the moment, can be represented by four boxes, two corresponding to the first actor, and two corresponding to the second actor. These boxes can be filled with thoughts of three forms, open left-handed, open right-handed, and closed. The first box on the left of the first actor is the internal box. The second is the body posture, posing box. For the second individual, the first box on the left is the body posture, posing box and the second is the internal thought box. At time equals zero, the two boxes of the main actor will be filled and the internal box of the secondary actor will be filled. But the body posture box of the second actor is empty, because he, she is not acting. Now, there are a few basic rules regarding these thought pairings. First, A left-handed open thought may pair with the other two or itself. Only when it pairs with itself does it release tension. Otherwise, it produces tension. The same goes for a right-handed open thought. A closed thought always produces tension. Now, in the moment, when describing the two pairs of two boxes, the two on the left should be filled, while the external of the second pairing should be empty. This is because as the first actor acts on the second actor, it imports the internal thought of the first actor into the external box of the second actor. Inhibition can be represented through the four boxes as a left-handed open bonded with a right-handed open or a suppositional thought bonded with an open thought. Altruism can be represented by a matching or mirroring of the internal box of the second actor by the first actor. Competition can be represented by either the first pairing having an open right and left handed pairing with the internal box of the first actor, the opposing orientation of the second internal box, or two left handed or two right handed with the opposing handed box in the internal box of the second pairing. Now, let's say you're dealing with an interaction between two individuals. In this example, the first individual is a police officer and the second is someone speeding. The first action, The thesis is the second actor speeding, indirect ground. The antithesis is the first actor putting on his siren to pull over the second actor, indirect ground. There are now two possibilities, both indirect ground, one, the second actor can slow down and stop, indirect ground. Second, the second actor can attempt to drive away, indirect ground. So let's say the second actor chooses to slow down and stop. Now, the next action would ordinarily be the antithesis and choice of the first actor, to detain or release the second actor, but in this case, the second actor can change the dialogue through suppositional thought. If the second actor acts by suppositional thought to submit, or act by letting go, the grounded thought remains with the directly grounded thought, which means that the first actor will mirror the second actor in settling upon a release. This is because the first actor still has two options to detain or release, but the release is the grounded thought, so it is fulfilled. Now, altruism is often a product of the negation of self. Negation of self often leads to postural releases in others, which manifests as outs. This is of course just another way of explaining the example set out a few moments ago. It's important to also note that you can structure the way you make statements to reflect an outward-inward or inward-outward direction of causality and thereby produce patterns is set out in the above example. It would be easier to visually represent the examples and concepts of this podcast episode. Unfortunately, this is not the right medium. However I hope that this episode at least introduced the topic in a way which was comprehensible to the listener. In this episode we will be talking about the stuff of experience and associations. We can start this episode by eliminating a quite common distinction made by people as they understand reality and the mind. In fact, there is no true distinction between the physical and the mental. Thoughts manifest spatially just as surely as spatial actions are thoughts. It is easy to say this, but some elaboration is necessary. Suffice it to say, Experience is a single substance. Thought and matter are ultimately interchangeable. Precognitive thoughts reveal this to be true, in that, it is possible to experience an event before it is in substance actually happening. But this is also to say, that the mind reorients thought, the stuff of meaning, to provide it a personal connotation. Thought, meaning is impartial, elusive, stuff, which gains essence through its orientation towards the personal. Now, since we can say this with certainty, we can also say that internal continuity in the form of sensical close associations, manifests as reasonable social behaviour. Associations internally produce the patterns that we see in everyday life. Which is to say that loose or weak associations internally produce discontinuous or incongruous behaviour. The distinction is not a meaningful one, in that we must understand thought and substance to be one. Now, Grasping these ideas, we can now posit that the influence or orbit of our mind, perhaps like a lens, draws the inert into our process rather like a planet of mass draws matter into its orbit. Both are substance, but something about our egoistic existence gives one the appearance of substance and the other in mere insubstantial grasping. In truth, once one observes this, it becomes possible to see that the very fabric of this reality flows through consciousness rather like a sieve revealing its nature. These are puzzling lessons, but they are essential to understanding the dichotomy between the mind and body, the physical and ideal. Likewise, in observing that the substance of reality equates with the substance of thought, the architecture about which I've been writing takes centre stage, as a kind of primer, or intermediary. Be that as it may, these podcasts describe the internal structure of reality, beyond which I can assert reality finds itself rather recursively patterned after itself, which follows from the above point, since we see that association and spatial congruity are practically interrelated. In this episode we will be summarizing and revisiting a few recent podcasts in relation to closed social systems, entropy, dualism, multiplicity and unitary reality in a previous episode one talked about how closed social systems create dualism through othering. I would also have to indicate that dualism is a product of the principle of polarity and dialectical pairing. In episode one of season eight I discussed how two contradictory observations of the same event degenerate at a rate proportional to the audience size. However, I should point out that this degeneration reflects the existence of a closed social system. Two individuals see the same event with dialectical observations of that event. There is an audience observing the two individuals. One of the two observations degenerates due to the audience. That audience represents a closed social system to the extent that their observation matches unanimously. The outliers are excluded into an outgroup and othered. Thus, dialectical observations of the same event produce othering and the formation of an outgroup. Each concurring audience member who verifies an observation, halves the entropy to some minimum entropy, where a second observation recapitulates the process. Closed social systems are never completely closed. That is to say that some migration is inevitable over time. The presence of individuals with dual dialectical thoughts increases the entropy of the closed social system and draws new individuals in through migration. This migration can be anticipated according to the extent that any internal or external individuals maintain dual dialectical contradicting thoughts. Now, whenever an individual is othered, the in-group's thoughts will manifest as dialectical pairings. The effect will be negating, discordant, the expectations and confidence wages of the individual will be frustrated, appropriated. In effect, to the extent that a reality is dualistic, which is the unstable entropic state, it is not unitary. Likewise even when the in-group has finished the degeneration process, there is still some minimum entropy to the system. Meaning that no matter how consistent the degeneration, it is never a completely unitary reality, which follows from the principle of polarity. In other words, multiplicity, dualism, may be the default state of the system. The illusion of a unitary reality, may be the truth. In this episode, we will be discussing negation, the internal mind and a new concept called channeling. As discussed in a previous episode, the creation of an internal mind, a private space for introspective thought, is the result of folds in time, the presence of negating thoughts. Typically this means that it is a cooperative endeavour, the result of closed mirroring thoughts on the part of two interacting individuals. The presence of these mirrored closed thoughts delimits the extent to which individuals can communicate, and the extent of the underlying gateway. In other words, when individuals do not maintain a baseline of mirrored closed thoughts, the result is the experience of the unity of consciousness. The absence of an enclosure for thought processes generates open thought pairings. These open thought pairings form automatically between interacting individuals. In the presence of enclosure, It's the internal open thoughts which pair. This is what I call channeling. Now, to understand this graphically, in deference, the first individual has a closed thought in its external box and an open in its internal. This transforms the open internal to the external of the second individual. But when the external closed is mirrored by the second individual, we have enclosure and a fold in time, which preserves the pairing of the two internals. Representing folds in time, enclosure of thought as mirrored closed thoughts is between two individuals is akin to the recognition that closed postures imply a circumscribing of the sphere of activity of an individual or a limiting of his or her responsiveness to external communication closed postures deny our inclusion in an activity or discussion in this episode we will be talking about the principle of conservation in broader detail in an earlier episode We talked about four principles governing reality, which included the principle of conservation. This principle, as explained in season 2, episode 2, determines that identity is not created or destroyed. For every impulse that is repressed, there is a reality in which it occurs. Every person has nine different forms, existing in distinct nested realities, where every impulse held by the individual unconsciously is actively expressed. Now, For further information about conservation please review Season 2 Episode 2 of the Monologues. Today, we will be talking about an entirely different form of conservation, namely, the balance between reward and punishment, work and play. These thoughts must be preceded by a brief discussion of the principle all is one, or all is one, which posits that we are all one consciousness, fragmented, yes, multiplicitous yes, but one. Taking these two principles together tells us that all pain and pleasure, work and play, is zero-sum. Now, that is not to say that it is impossible to exist in a state which is not zero-sum. Of course, this is possible, but only in groups, and only by not linking it to an attachment. Let me explain, as soon as there is passion, as soon as there is attachment, there is suffering or pain. For every self which experiences the pleasure of attachment, there is a balance in another not possessing it, and suffering for it. For example, let us say that you are in love with a woman. Now, you get together and spend six months enjoying each other intimately. During this six months, that pleasure is paid for in suffering by another suitor who also loves her, but lost the chance to be with her. The more suffering felt by another, the more passion will fill you. Such is the balance of life, and love, conservation and all is one. Taking a step back now, imagine that all the happiness in the world around you, all the joy, all the suffering, is connected. Imagine that for every quantized moment of poignant passion, there is another of deep suffering. If you start to see reality this way, then and only then will you understand the appeal of religions like Christianity, where the sins of the many were paid for by his blood. I am not endorsing a religion here, Purely indicating that the logic relied upon by the Christians traces its roots to a recognition that all suffering ultimately pays for those moments of happiness. Now, when I say suffering, I am referring more broadly to suffering in the sense of pain, of work, of tension, of the deleterious emotions which we must all endure. And it is also correct to say that often the suffering that pays for happiness is our own. Suffering can be part of working towards something enjoyable but for many, their suffering is less selfish and more altruistic. The balance of pain and pleasure demands it. Now, this pleasure can also be paid for through one's archetypal constellation. It can be paid for proactively or it can be paid for retrospectively. It is enough that it is paid and the balance maintained. For example, an individual may fall in love with another with the content of their perceptions of the other being comprised largely of those projected by the unsuccessful suitor. The constellation thus preserves a gateway between the two suitors which preserves the passion, whilst appropriating the feelings from the unsuccessful suitor to the successful suitor. When we wrote that passion in the present is falling in love with recycled perceptions of the past what I was referring to is the balance created by conservation, generating gateways, between past loves and unsuccessful suitors to produce the passion of the here and now. Suffice it to say, knowing that every smile is paid for in blood, sweat and tears, is a humbling realisation. And gives us a reason to feel indebted to those least among us. If only so we can feel the joy of a first kiss, or the laughter of reuniting with an old friend. In this episode, We will be elaborating upon two more concepts found in this podcast, which arise out of the esoteric narratives of the New Testament and Quran. Specifically, this author finds support for the principle of pairing, conservation, appropriation, substitution, and displacement, governing the non consensual. Now, the first concept I'd like to reintroduce is the concept of pairing. In past episodes, this was phrased in a couple of ways. First, thoughts pair, which is to say, they always manifest in pairings. For every thesis, there is an antithesis. For every open thought of one orientation, there is an open thought of opposing orientation. This concept was used to explain the principle of polarity, which is to say, every time you have a thought, it manifests its opposite, not in your mind, but in the mind of another. This principle was also used to explain the dialectical process in human society. Since for every thesis, there is an antithesis, dialectical action becomes the default form of sociality. For every movement there is a counter-movement. For every truth, an opposing falsehood. Now, this concept finds its root in the Quran, namely, Quran 36-36 which reads, Glory to Allah who created in pairs all things that the earth produces, as well as their own, human, kind and, other, things of which they have no knowledge. Holy is he who created all things in pairs, whether it be of what the earth produces, and of themselves, and of what they do not know. This passage provides support for the contention that even what we do not know, that is, things beyond our apprehension, the unseen, exist in pairs. The second principle I would like to explain is Conservation. This concept essentially means that identity is conserved, it isn't created or destroyed by displacement, but simply moves from one person to another. In that, God has decreed that for every thesis there be its dialectical opposite. This concept is used to explain the existence of dualism in reality and society as a whole. It is also used to explain the interrelated concepts of substitution and displacement, which is to say that thoughts, identity, pass from person to person through substitutionary acts, created by physical displacement or territoriality. It is also used to explain the concept of appropriation, which I will explain shortly. Conservation finds its root in Matthew 13:12. This passage reads, Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. This passage is interesting for a few reasons. 1. It dovetails neatly with the passages contained in the Qur'an explained in the previous episode. But it is also interesting because the statement suggests that there is an equilibrium, a kind of mathematical precision to our endowments. From one he takes, to another he gives. This conservation reflects a kind of justice. But it also describes the manner of this allocation. For it states that he who has, that is to he who possesses something, more will be given. whereas to him who does not have, from him even what he has will be taken away. This concept can be applied to any act of physical territoriality or attachment. In a past episode, we talked about how possession of an object manifests physically, in that the touching of the object, the handling of the object, is a manifestation of an internal attachment. For he who holds something in attachment, shall be given more of that thing. Conservation tells us that identity manifests through union or appropriation, the result of substitution and displacement. An archetypal gateway generates union between two selves causing an archetypal convergence both backward and forward in time. But in the absence of union, that is, when polarity rules, divergences lead to the shifting of the identity from one person to another on the basis of possession or attachment that is the physical embodiments of attachment, reflect the accumulation rather than the diminution of possession. If you would like to understand the concepts of appropriation, substitution and displacement, or conservation, there are numerous podcasts which explore these concepts. But I will provide a summary podcast explaining them shortly. That's the end of the podcast for today. If you enjoyed it, please like, comment and subscribe.